in light of what uh, has transpired in our church family, uh, wrestling through things, we decided to to spend uh, a special message this morning um, on the problem and the issue of death. And I'm going to start with with a few words about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a bachelor his whole life. He's a Christian writer and, and Cambridge professor. A lot of you guys might know him from the Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That was his work. And he's written a lot of other great novels and books. He passed away uh, in 1963. But C.S. Lewis uh, didn't get married until he was 57 years old. He was a bachelor his whole life. And at 57, he found love in an unusual way. And I won't go into all the story, but it's a beautiful story. There's actually a couple of movies about it. They're both called Shadowlands. And they're both very good if you can find the BBC one or the American one with Anthony Hopkins. They're great movies. But, but in his marriage, he experienced um, a level of love and intimacy he'd never had before. It was, it was an intense four years of happiness, which then ended in grief when his wife that he had just found at the age of 57, he lost her four years later to a, a battle with bone cancer. And Lewis kept a journal in the midst of this grief. Some of you guys are familiar with it called A Grief Observed. It was released after his death under his name. Before that, he allowed it to be released uh, under a different name. And nobody knew it was him. But, but it was his journal of the journey of grief that he'd gone through. And um, in the journal, he refers to his deceased wife. Her real name was Joy. But he refers to her under the initial H. And that was probably to, to keep himself private. And in the particular sections of this book, A Grief Observed, Lewis captures for me the, the, the worst part of the pain of death for those of us who are left behind. And in that book, he says this. After the death of a friend years ago, I had for some time a most vivid feeling of certainty about his continued life, even his enhanced life. Regarding his own wife's death, he says, in essence, but I have begged to be given one hundredth part of the same assurance about H. There is no answer. Only the locked door, the iron curtain, the vacuum, absolute zero. I was a fool to ask. It is hard to have patience with people who say, there is no death. Death doesn't matter. There is death. And whatever is matters. And whatever happens has consequences. And they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than in all those vast times and spaces... If I were allowed to search them, I should find nowhere her face, her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? Tonight, all the hells of young grief have opened again. The mad words, the bitter resentments, the fluttering in the stomach, the nightmare unreality. The wallowed in tears. How often will it be? For always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me? 
How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss until this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. The first plunge of the knife into the flesh is felt again and again. They say the coward dies many times. So does the beloved. Lewis writes, at least for me, he speaks to the core pain of death. It is pure and utter and humbling, dreadful separation. For the beloved, in their experience, it is the separation of soul from the body. But even more destroying for those of us left behind, it is the pain of being separated from those we love with absolutely no control, no power to restore that separation. And, and those of you who've experienced it, you might know what I mean about that pain that, and what Lewis talked about, that emptiness, that locked door. If living and loving are the most precious things in existence, then death slams the door on living. And in that same moment, death sentences our loving of the beloved into a kind of dreadful solitary confinement. It's like our love for that beloved person we've lost is like thrown into a dark cell. We still love them. But they're it feels like there's less and less to love, and that's horrifying. From that dark cell, we can't see or hear or touch or feel the beloved we long for. They are gone. And it does not compute. Sitting down with Linda Goddard this week, we both agreed that Processing death is like trying to swallow tinfoil. It just doesn't work. In the last few months, it feels like this enemy has been a frequent caller to our community. I can't do the stats perfectly, and, and maybe this is the ebb and flow of, of churches in different seasons, but it just feels like death has come closer. I'm, I'm hearing more about it. Maybe I'm more sensitive to it. I lost my mother just three years ago. But it just feels closer in the last six months. And this week we mourn with the Goddards and the Penningtons at the loss of their dear husband and father and grandfather. And we mourn with the Haydens at the loss of their precious grandbaby Skylar, six days old, who died of just, as far as I know, just SIDS and just lost breathing. And yes, we have our strong, strong hope from Scripture that both baby Skylar and Guy are resting in the arms of Christ Almighty, that God's heart towards babies is mercy, and that Guy knew Christ, and that both are experiencing Jesus as Savior at this very moment. But as I wrestled with those things this week and, and what message to bring this Sunday once Andrew had to devote his time to either the Hydens or his own family, 
as I spoke with Greg and Chris and others, I realized how often death has visited us this season. We've had to say goodbye to a precious daughter and sister in Liz Cato, to a beloved husband and father in Bill Keeley. We know Aaron Madsen and Sandra Bowden and Chris Tucker have had to say goodbye to fathers in the last couple of months. Edgar Vega, Edgar Vega lost his mother in December. Kirsten Barr lost her grandfather last week. And I know I'm forgetting or unaware of others of you who've lost loved ones. So please forgive me if, if I'm passing you over. But because death has been this frequent visitor and will continue to be a visitor in our lives, I felt led to ask us to confront this enemy today. To look him straight in the eye with the word of God and ask our Lord to arm us to contend with this enemy in a way that would bring us healing and bring God glory. So let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, we know from your word and we agree with your word. That apart from you, we can do nothing. I am powerless to speak effectively in a way that would bring any eternal weight or measure or nourishment. And we all sit powerless to hear in a way that would bring our souls nourishment. We are completely dependent on your Holy Spirit to make your word effective in our heart. But in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who shed his blood so that we could be cleaned, so that we could be fed, so that we could be nourished, so that we could feel and experience our beloved husband's redeemer's care this very moment, we boldly ask, knowing he sympathizes with our weaknesses, he, he covers our sins. He's our advocate right now before your right hand. That he sees and forgives sins that we're not even aware of. That through one spirit we have access to you. In his name we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts. That you would open my mouth to speak your words. That I would put more trust in you than my notes. And your Holy Spirit would meet with us today, God, and do a cleansing work that I need so much. As we were singing, holy, 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 I kept thinking how much I need you to cleanse me with your holy love. And so I beg you, as my Father, by virtue of the blood of Christ, as our Father, by virtue of the blood of Christ, cleanse your bride here this morning. Tend to your wife be our husband redeemer this morning and meet with us, nourish us, feed us. In Jesus' holy name we ask, Father. In Jesus' holy name we hope. Amen. Death is an enemy. But there is a tension because death is both a dreadful enemy that we must contend with, but it is also a defeated foe that God uses to instruct us and, dare I say, even to bless us. So I want to talk this morning about this enemy, and I want to talk about three truths about death. And then we'll move into some prayer and thoughts for application. Three truths about death this morning. Death is appointed by God. Death is a teacher. And death is destroyed by Christ. Death is appointed by God is the first point. Death is a teacher will be the second. And death is destroyed by Christ is the third point. 
First point, death is appointed by God. God hates death. He did not create us for death. But death is. Men and women, brothers and sisters, death is the just wages of sin that all of us deserve because of our first sin in Adam. In Genesis 3.19, I'm sorry, Genesis 2.6, as far as I know, the first, in the, within the first words that, that God speaks to Adam, he says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 3.19, expressing the ramifications of Adam's disobedience. He pronounces a curse upon the land. And then he says to Adam, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. In Romans 5.15, we hear Paul say this, referring to that first sin of our first father. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Many died through one man's trespasses. Sin and death came into the world through one man, and many died through one man's trespass. This is the doctrine called original sin. It is very difficult to understand. It is it is a mystery. But in a spiritual sense that we cannot fully understand, when Adam sinned, we were in a spiritual sense that God sees we were with him. All our potential. He was the one, the source from which we all come. And so when he sinned, we sinned in all our potential with him. The choice he made to reject God. This choice to reject the holy source of all life. Scripture tells us was also our choice. And all our sinning since confirms that. We are truly apart from Christ, in the image of our father, Adam, who rejected God and went his own way. And notice something important in that first reference in Genesis 2.6. In the day you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Of course, Adam didn't collapse on the ground after biting that apple, right? He lived, the Bible says he lived many, 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 many years after. Yet Adam died that day. He died in a way that is the most important kind of death. He died to God that day. See, death at its core, it isn't non-existence. It is separation. And when Adam rejected God, he separated himself from the source of all love and the source of all life. His body caught up with that much later. But it began that day. His real death started that day. So it's true in Ephesians 2, Paul says, we are already dead apart from Christ in our trespasses and sins. Now, of course, if we're among God's redeemed people, we are free from his condemnation through the blood of Christ. We are restored to his family. But he has ordained that even still, we will still suffer physical death. Our bodies will still bear the consequences of Adam's sin. This is captured well in Romans 8.10 where Paul says, If Christ is in you, see how honest and unapologetic God is about this. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive. 
because of righteousness. See, that separation of soul and body, it isn't fully healed yet. Our, our souls have been reconciled. Our spirits, our invisible beings have been reconciled and united with Christ. We've been talking that, about that for three weeks, united with the Holy Spirit. But our bodies, they're decaying. They're going a different direction. One day God will renew them, restore them, resurrect them, and catch them up with our spirit. However, we must take heed and take heart of this truth about death. God ordains all of our days, and he is the one who appoints our death. God hates death, yet he appoints it to all of us, and he ordains when it will come to each of us. 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Job 14, 5, since his days are determined, that is man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Psalm 139, 16, in your book were all written. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, a sparrow, will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. The strain running through all these passages is that God has decreed death for all of mankind. And he chooses how each of us will pass into his hands. Now, does this mean our choices are meaningless? No, there is a real mystery here. There is a real sense in Scripture that God uses real circumstances on this earth, real sicknesses, real accidents, and uses our own real choosing to accomplish his will. And we see this perfectly in the death of Christ, about which Peter, speaking to the Jewish rulers, declares this. Follow me here. The sovereignty of God in death and the, 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 the willed choice of man in death, in the same person. Acts 2.23. This man, that's Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, his sovereignty, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God used Judas's own willful decision to betray Jesus and the ruler's own willful decision to murder Jesus to accomplish his own willful decision to glorify Jesus by pouring our sins on him and making him our savior so that what God meant for evil, so that what they meant for evil, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Death is grievous. Death is not God's desire for mankind, but he brings it. And therefore, we must receive death from his sovereign hand. What happened to Guy Goddard this week, what happened to baby Skyler, is awful. It is horrible, and it is a mystery to us. But it is not outside of God's sovereign plan. And we, we have to humbly affirm that he knows what he is doing. 
that he has decided it is best for his will to unfold this way. That in his wisdom, that it is right for people to suffer bodily death, even those who know him. We must affirm that even in the most sobering and grieving realities of death, we must affirm that he is wiser than us and he knows what he is doing. He brings blessing and he brings disaster. But he is God and we are not. When I lost my mom three years ago or two and a half years ago, no, no, goodness, three years ago plus. I've said this before, but I, I received wonderfully intended texts from people encouraging scriptures. None of them encouraged me that I can recall. I found one word from God that I could sink my teeth into and hold on to. And it was this. After Job lost all his children. Job rises and tears his robe and he shaves his head and he falls to the ground. And the Bible says he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. If any of you saw the email I sent out about baby Skylar, you saw Glenn say almost the exact same thing. And I'm sure he wasn't trying to quote Job. He said, I will not blame God. God is my refuge. In that season, I didn't need encouragement. I needed weeping. I needed affirming. I needed acknowledging that God had allowed this, that he was in control and that he ultimately had done this. And somehow that was my safety, so much more than happy thoughts and happy memories. And I just needed the Lord to say, Albert, I did this. I brought this to pass. I gave and I took away. Blessed be my name. My second point is that death is a teacher. Death is a teacher. In Ecclesiastes 7, we read these words. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of fools... Is in the house of pleasure. Isn't that a word for our age? And our country. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. How many houses of pleasure for fools. Do we have at our disposal like never before. like the Lord has allowed houses for fools to sprout up all over our screens and our malls. And I'm not saying don't take delight in good things and good gifts, but there is a sense in which we are being numb to sleep from the most important thing to consider, 
the lessons that death would teach us. Many of us have heard the admonition of Psalm 90, 12, where it says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Live smart, live, live wisely. But when I look back at that psalm and consider it in its context, it became much more grave than simply live smart, make wise choices. Listen to what Moses says right before he says, teach us to number our days. He says this, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? According to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to number our days? Live wisely, make wise choices? No, in the immediate context, it means to recognize that death is an expression of the wrath of a just God who considers our sins and judges them. We go from from PG to R-rated very quickly when we expand that winsome verse, teach us to number our days and see it in its immediate context. Now Moses is not speaking of individual death. He's, He's not saying, you died at 20 and so your sins are worse than the guy who dies at 80. He is speaking of the general tenor of mortality, of death that covers all mankind. Every life returns to the dust. And this is God's decree for our involvement in sin from the garden onward. And so death teaches us, Moses says, that this life is not to be toyed with, but to realize something is wrong. Now we have domesticated death, haven't we? In our culture with this sense of, oh, it just happens. It's a phase of life. People get old and they die. It's natural. What's the song? It's the circle of life. Hakuna Matata, right? Death is part of the circle of what life? Could anything be more untrue? Just wake up and think about that. Death is part of the circle of life. Death is part of life. No, it isn't. It's death. It's separation from anything and everyone and all that you loved and all that you knew, whether it's on this side or their side. It's horrible. And we cannot ignore that. We can't just sleep ourselves through this life and plan for our retirement. And plan. I mean, I just, I have a, one of my closest relatives. I don't want to say who it is. He is so smart. He's a genius. He's so established. He's so wealthy. He's so... From an earthly point of view, he is my hero. He knows what to do with this world in ways that just, I just admire and respect so much. And he moved, he's, I've watched him move through the phases of life from one achievement, one success to another. Brilliant. But I just think, what are you doing? 
you know, I'm sure you're getting ready to plan your, your retirement phase because you're such a good planner. You think so far ahead. What are you planning for after you collapse in a heap and are gone? Jesus tells a story of a man who, who played with death, who, who domesticated it and stored up all he could in this life. And he said of that man, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. God doesn't want us to domesticate death. He wants us to raise our eyes to heaven. And help the world ask, why? Why? A central reason, if not the central reason that God left this church on earth. I mean our church, I mean every church. Is to provoke that question. To keep that question aflame in Jesus' disciples so that we do not drift away and presume that we can coast and we can go back to the world and call ourselves his kids. No, to call ourselves to be awake. But also to say to this world, to provoke the world, to help them ask that question, why? In all their pain, in all their grief, to help them ask that question, what, what is the point? Where can I find where can I find life? Where can I find something that lasts? And to say to them, with love, death becomes, death comes upon us because of our sin. It is an expression of judgment on mankind. In fact, it is the front door to an eternal judgment of separation from God in hell. And I love you too much to keep that from you. And I am pleading with you. Please come to know Jesus. Please let me tell you about Jesus. Because everyone who is not in Christ is going to that place of judgment. I'm sure that I am not doing what I should when it comes to all the social justice issues I could be compassionate about it. I'm serious when it comes to the poor, when it comes to refugees, when it comes to racism. I am sure that I am not doing what I could do. But what are we doing if we make a comfortable place in our homes, in our lives, in our churches, in our workplace for the disenfranchised? And don't pay heed to the fact that it's a band-aid on cancer. Racism and poverty and nationalism and these things aren't our greatest problem. They are symptoms. Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence Earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead. The great and the small standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened. Which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Perhaps but the dead were judged. I think the Greek and there can mean either. 
The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And listen, brothers and sisters, the word of God gives no hope that anyone who is judged according to their deeds will end up anywhere but in hell. That is one of the least popular things anyone could say in the universe. But that is the testimony of God's very word. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the death we see here now, it is a precursor to warn us that judgment is coming and to flee to Christ. I was thinking about this, what a sober, gravely, but what a gift that death is. Could you imagine if everyone, everyone born in all of history lived eternally until the day of judgment? Could you imagine how much easier it would be to ignore death and to presume and to just coast? But no, God scatters the scent of death across the topography of our lives to warn us. There is no eternal hope in this place, neither for you nor the people you love. Not for you, not for your spouse, not for your parents, not for your children. There is no hope that lasts on this earth. And he allows us to witness that over the centuries, doesn't he? So that we might flee to Christ. So that we might call others to flee to Christ. And that brings us to our last point. Death is destroyed by Christ. Finally, some good news. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, which is death. From 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of Christ. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Death is no exception. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is coming a day when there will be no more death. There will be no more goodbyes. There will be no more separation. There will be no more doors that you pound on. And there's no answer. There'll be no more looking at gravestones and nothing but silence coming back to you. There'll be no more moms who go away and you love them and they loved you and they were so much a part of your whole life, but nothing you can do can allow you to hear their voice, feel their hug, put whatever loved one you want to put in there. There's a day coming where that will be destroyed Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 18. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is taking us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to that first sin. Follow me here. He partook of the same things. That's flesh and blood. That, that, that thing that we're made of. He, he became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Who was there on that first day leading us to abandon God? Seducing us. It was the devil. And in his lies was the power of death. Therefore, the author goes on, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect in terms of their humanity so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of people. In Adam's sin, mankind His life was required of him. Our lives become required of us as as punishment, as payment for our sins. Jesus Christ became a man to take the punishment that only man could pay. And he paid it in full. This verse takes us all the way back to that garden. Satan holding the power of death, lying to us. And our rejection of God, allowing ourselves to be seduced into his plan. He incited our first parents and brought death to all of us. But thanks be to God that he has made a way for that payment to be paid by someone else, his son, Jesus Christ. He calls us back to himself. He calls us to turn from our own way and say, God, you are my God. I, all the songs we sang, you are holy. You made me. You know how this is supposed to go. I've turned from you. Lord, forgive me. I can't save myself. All I can give you is payment in death for my sin. But he calls us to put our hope in what Jesus did, right? This is the gospel. This is why we're here. This is what we're called to tell each other and and keep each other in, in, in mind of. This is what we're called to share with the world that is dying. Without Jesus. So when I thought about. This Sunday. I. I. I wrestled. You know first I was thinking let's. Let's stay on track with the Holy Spirit. God's doing good things. And as I thought more about what's going on in our church. I thought no. Let's care for these families that are grieving. As I looked at the bigger picture, I saw a Facebook post by Sandra. She just kind of, Sandra Bowden, a few days ago, maybe it was yesterday, just listed all these people around her who passed them. And it's occurred to me since then, God, what are you saying to us? Yes, we need to pray for these families, and we will do that because they are grieving, and they need to be brought to hope, the hope that we have in Christ, that they will see their loved ones again. We're commanded to encourage each other with those words. It's not sentimentality. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he commands us to encourage each other with the hope that we will see those who passed away in Christ again. And I believe we can do that for both Skylar and Guy. But I wonder if there's something bigger even for all of us together as a church to grab hold of. 
that through all this passing away that we're seeing, it's a polite way to say this deep destruction of life. That God is trying to clean us and wake us up from slumbering in, in this world and treasuring the things of this world and asking us to more deeply give ourselves to the mission, to the mission in here to exhort and to warn and encourage each other to stay faithful to Jesus Christ and to keep following him and the mission out around us. All these relatives, all these neighbors, all these co-workers, some of you are so much better at this than I am, but to see them afresh, to see them afresh, not with arrogance and pride that we've got anything in ourselves, but with love. To see their real state, to see where they're headed again, that God would cleanse us to give us a, a greater anointing, a greater spiritual cleansing, to see what I saw when I was first saved, so much better I feel than I have at different seasons in my life. But they don't have Jesus. They don't have life. Even in the face of this age and this culture to say to our hearts first, they are going to hell without Jesus. First John tells us that all mankind is under the power of the evil one. All mankind, apart from Christ, is under the power of the evil one. Brothers and sisters, Paul of Tarsus, he said, how will they be saved unless they hear? And how will they hear unless they are sent? Saul of Tarsus for all we know, was beheaded to bring that message to the lost. He gave up everything because he knew that there was nothing greater than loving people with the message of Christ. And it was worth his life. And he found life. He found joy. He found fulfillment in giving his life away to care for people in the most ultimate, greatest way they needed care. 